Saints of God, I, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our series through the Apocalypse of John. By the grace of God, we have arrived at the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. There are now only two chapters left in our study through Revelation, but let me um, encourage you, that does not mean that we will be done with this book anytime soon. There are some of the most glorious doctrines to consider in these last two chapters of the Apocalypse of John. Here in these final chapters, among the many, John is given a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. It will be combined to not be separate, but to be one called the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It will be the new an eternal temple of God for his people. Here in these final verses, we will consider the church who is the bride, who is finally purified and finally presented to Christ whole, body and soul. We will consider that great marriage and the eternal fellowship of bride and groom without end. There are many things that we are going to consider in these final chapters of Revelation. But here, in this final series of visions, there is at least one thing that can be glossed over, read past, and even if there is a point of stopping upon it, it can be greatly misunderstood. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. Saints of God, what will the new heaven and new earth be like? What will it be like? Let me ask you a, maybe even a, a different question. What do you hope it's like? What will be there? What will not be there? What do you hope will be there? I wonder if you have spent any time teaching about or thinking about what the scriptures teach concerning the questions that we have just asked in this holy city and what our eternal state will be. That, that is that, that state of being that will not change. What will this city be like? It is called holy city because... Heaven and earth become one. It is holy, heavenly, city, earthly, uh, combined as one. They will create, God will create, a holy habitat for his people. Heaven will come down and what will earth do? Or what will it do to the earth? Will the earth be just like it is now? Why is heaven and earth new? What's new about it? In what way do heaven and earth, the first heaven and earth, in what way do they pass away to make room for the new heaven and earth? In what way is there a passing away? What about the sea? John says there will be no sea. 
at the end of verse 1. Will there be a sea? Uh, will there be an ocean? Will you get to go play at the beach in heaven, in the new creation? Many questions I, I hope to address. And in these final chapters, there will be many questions that will yet remain unanswered until we experience them ourselves. Let us be clear about this one thing, and this is the, this is the aim of this sermon. Look at verse 3 of chapter 21. This, this, is the aim of this, this is the aim of the next two chapters. Behold, the tabernacle of God. Pause. The aim of the next two chapters, I, I pray the goal of everything that I say for as long as we're in, in Revelation for the next two chapters will be this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That when we consider the new creation, that this verse is at the forefront of everything that we think about, hope for, and find delight in, in the new creation. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Here's the next wondrous part. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This and one other thing in chapter 22, verse 4 or 5. And we will see him. This is the aim of the next two chapters with every sermon that I will preach. For the next two chapters. These two, these two are going to be the aim. And what all of that means. Amidst the wonders of all that we see in the next two chapters... These will be a constant source of hope for our souls as we persevere in our bodies in the faith with great anticipation for the great fulfillment of God's promise. Again, here's what I'm aiming for this morning with God's help. There's going to be a lot of stuff, but I, I, if you get this, then you're going to get the point. It is. I want us to consider with God's help loosening our grip on the things that are temporal and reaching out with open hands and with great anticipation to that which is eternal, namely God. But that's that's my, my aim with God's help this morning is to help us to, me included, to loose our grip of temporal things and reach out with great anticipation to those eternal things or to that which is eternal, namely to God. This morning, with God's help, two points concerning the joy of the new creation. The joy of the new creation. Number one, heaven and earth become one. Uh, verse one, I'm not going to read it again. You've heard it. Our great shepherd and high, great high priest offers to his people a sure hope of the future in spite of the tribulation that we experience on earth. Um, these two chapters, remember, are first read, read by seven churches who are experiencing tribulation. To the church for all time that will be experiencing tribulation, Christ is offering to them a sure hope and something that they can look forward to beyond what this world can offer. And also beyond um, those who are opposing them in this world. John sees a new heaven and new earth. This echoes the promise of the prophet Isaiah who says uh, in Isaiah 65 and 66, Behold, God says, I will create a new heavens and new earth, and the former, thing, former things will not be remembered or come to mind. 
That is the things of this world. In the new creation, former things, the things of this world, will not be remembered nor come to mind. That is things of suffering. Will you see um, your fellow brother and sister and say, I know you. But we know we knew someone. We knew them here. So that will be remembered. But the suffering will not be. John sees that the first heaven and, and first earth, they pass away in order to make room for new heaven, new earth. How does the first heaven and earth pass away? Let, let me be very clear with you. We're going to work on, on earth because, frankly, I can't understand for the life of me how first heaven passes away. I, I'm still working on it. Okay, so, But I've got a lot on the earth today, so let's deal with that. Some Christians believe... That our present earth will be destroyed and replaced by an altogether new earth, new world. This is based on, not nothing, but a verse in scripture, 2 Peter 3, you can turn there if you want to, 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, where the apostle Peter says, But the day of the Lord, that's that final day, will come like a thief. In which, listen to this, the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's what I don't. That's the part that I don't understand that i got to work on. And the elements, that's this, the world, will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works, that's all the things in the earth and the way that they function, will be burned up. Okay. Verse 11 and 12, or verse 11 of 2 Peter 3 the apostle says heaven and earth will be destroyed. Some believe that St. Peter is teaching of, listen to this word, teaching of the eradication of the present world and the creating of a new one in its place. Literal, that is the literal eradication of the world and the literal replacing of the world with a whole new world created by God. There's some technicality there, but we'll get to it. The belief is, it comes from, this belief comes from the language of Peter that says, destruction, destroy. And when people think of the word destruction, we can only think of demolition. You with me? When Peter says destroyed, we um, conclude demolished. Many conclude that the world also will implode especially those who are living during this century, in the last maybe hundred years, people have believed, I don't know how long the atomic bomb has been around, people have, have believed that the world will implode through some kind of world war. That North Korea will send bombs this way, we will send bombs that way, Russia will send bombs this way, China will send bombs, and then everything in this world will just implode. And that it will be a fulfillment of Peter's prophecy. Interesting, though, if you're in that verse that Peter was, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter also describes how God already destroyed the world. Do you remember when God already destroyed the world? Same language. He says that God destroyed the world when he judged the world in Noah's day. That the earth was destroyed at that time. Now, same word. Peter says, in order to understand what God 
does in the future, we take a look at the past in a certain way. Yeah? Was the earth demolished when God destroyed it in the days of Noah? Well, the answer is no. The floodwaters covered the earth. Sinners were destroyed. They were punished for their sin, but the earth was and is still here. So then in what kind of way was the earth destroyed in the days of Noah? The earth was destroyed in that earth dwellers who represent sinners were destroyed. Are you with me? Earth dwellers. Sinful men. They were destroyed in the waters of judgment and the earth is eradicated in a certain way of sin. There's a type of renewal on the earth because all sinners, as it were, are put to death, even though there are seven sinners, or, or something like that, on the boat. There's no more than seven. I think there's ten. On the boat. I don't know how many women. There, you know what I'm talking about. doesn't matter. So will it be on the day of judgment, Peter is getting at. Heaven and earth will experience a renewal or a, a type of destruction in that all sin will be destroyed. Not necessarily the earth, though. There is a type of destruction, restoration, or a, a being rightly ordered that creation will experience and that sin is eradicated from it. But not necessarily that Creation itself is destroyed in a certain sense. Now stay with me, because I'm, I'm going to make a point for this as we go forward. New or rightly ordered means e being eradicated of sin. This is what took place in the days of Noah. This is also what is meant by the end of verse 1, the sea is no more. Sin is no more. Sea, in, in the book of Revelation, as we explained last week, is meant to represent chaotic sin. It's now no more. Okay, well, so the earth will be. Follow this argument, yes? Will the earth be demolished and God make a new earth? I think the answer is no. God will restore this earth by removing sin and, listen to this now, and elevating earth by uniting it to heaven. Purifying earth, or we might even use a, another word, deifying earth, both by removing sin from it, which, means, which makes it holy, and then being present in it in the fullest sense of being present. Follow that? The earth takes on a, a new quality. It's elevated and that sin is removed from it. And then now God brings his temple down and earth becomes God's temple. Earth then is elevated in a holy sense. Okay. I see some of you not catching, but you will watch. I hope when Christ returns, he will not make all new things. Instead, he will make all things new. Christ will restore or rightly order all things 
And there is a connection, in a certain way, between what Christ does to you, believers, when we come to him in faith, and what God does to the heavens and the earth. Meaning this, when Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the instrument of the preaching of the gospel, draws sinners to himself, what becomes new? Pastor Isaiah was talking about it this morning in a certain part. What becomes new about you? The scriptures say you become a new creation. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. We are converted when we are born again. But you don't re-enter your mother's womb and come out all over again and experience a new, a new kind of physical existence, do you? The answer is no. Rather, we're made new in the soul. When you're made a new creation, you don't have... Now I have the opportunity to be taller than I actually am. And now I have the opportunity to... to whatever physically I might lack in, I, I, I get to try again. Not the case. What's made new about you in the new creation? Your soul. You were given a new heart and a new, and a new mind, yes? When you're born again or made a new creation, are you physically destroyed? No. You actually come to life in your soul. You're given a new soul. Our bodies remain, though, don't they? Our bodies are good. And, or but, we needed a new mind. We needed a new heart. It's the promise of the, of the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to the language that the Apostle Paul used to describe this transformation. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. It's the same language that Paul, that John uses in Revelation chapter 21. The first heaven and first earth pass away. Sin is removed from them. John is not saying that the earth that we now live in will be demolished any more than he's saying you were demolished when you became a new creation, when you were regenerated. Rather, he's saying that heaven and earth will be rightly ordered and elevated. Rightly ordered and elevated. I hope that you know what I mean by elevated, to a holy state. At this point, let's go further. What will then the new creation be like? Now, here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to make a one to one. Uh, let's get to it. Will the things within the earth be what they are only renewed? Are you with me? So earth will it will remain. Stay with me. Now, what about the things in the earth? What are we talking about? Plants, animals, Mountains, waters, will they still be here only purified? Are you with me? Will there be a sun in the new creation? Will there be a moon in the new creation? Hmm. How about stars? Plants? Will Fido... Your doggy, be in the new creation. Betsy, your horse, will she be in the new creation? Fluffy, your lamb, will it be in the new creation? What about rivers, lakes, 
Will the things that we now know in creation be in the new creation only in a renewed state of existence? What, what does that mean? That means that you can drink out of all of the waters and they will be the best. It'll be a true mountain spring water. That's pure water. Animals, even dangerous animal, animals, no longer being dangerous. Grass that you can run for days in barefoot because there will be no pokies. A sky with no pollution. The list can go on and on, I think, and I think you get the point. Is that the hope that you're clinging to? Is that the thing that you're, you're saying, I hope so? Is this what we should expect from this merging of heaven and earth? Well, let me, let me um, be, be gracious. There are some who say yes. He said I could name him. Even our dear brother Mario said yes. G.K. Beale says yes. He argues that everything in the first creation gives us a sense of what will be in the new creation. So if there are plants, animals, and various waters in creation, there will be the same in the new creation. Richard Phillips, another person that I, I use in the commentary, says, Just as Noah departed the ark into the renewed version of the old world, with sin swept away, Christ will usher us into a new creation that has been pristinely cleansed and made glorious. I don't know what he means by that, but I'm going to assume that he says, Everything here will be there, only glorious. Pristine. Before we go further, I think it's important that we ask questions. Why does creation exist? Why is there a sun? Why is there a moon? Why are there water, food, plants, mountains? Why do they exist? The scriptures actually tell us why. Psalm 19.1 and plenty other places. The heavens are declaring... Telling of your glory. The glory of God. The heavens are proclaiming the glory of God. Their expanse, which means stars and galaxies, are declaring the work of your hands, David says. What are they doing? Why are they there? They're declaring God's glory. They are proclaiming the work of God's hand. David says, day to day pours forth a speech. Every day, there is a, a, a certain message being said. Night reveals knowledge. Listen to this. There is no speech, though. And there's no words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. David is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, creation is speaking without a word. Creation is declaring a silent message of what? The glory of God and the work of his hands. Creation is, in a sense, a silent minister to the divine power, beauty, kindness, and love of God. Amen. Creation, by the very rising of the sun to break the day and the soft light of the moon to guide us in the night, it ministers to all rational souls, you and I, that the one who made these things is the one who you should give glory and power, glory and honor and delight and find delight in. 
You ever seen the northern lights of Alaska and you go, wow. The redwoods in California and go, whew. The mountain ranges of Colorado and go, wow, my. The great whale, the powerful lion, the vast oceans, deserts, the emerald hills of, of Ireland. What is their purpose? They are proclaiming to us a silent, without words, message of the beauty, the kindness, the mercy, and the love of God. They are calling us not to give them honor, praise, and glory, but they are calling us, pointing us to the one who has made them, give him honor, praise, and glory. Find delight in him who made them. They are calling us to not cling to them, but reach out to him. They are calling us not to go hug a tree. Not to embrace or bow down to that burning ball of fire called the sun, but to reach out to the creator of all these things, to know him and to love him. It's because of our corruption through sin that causes us to misplace our worship. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God, you know this one, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known by God is evident to them. God's made it evident through creation. We know God. God's made himself evident. Paul will later argue that we even know God by nature. According to what we do, we act according to a law. But Paul first appeals to logic. He says, you know God, Romans 1.20, because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his power, divine nature, are clearly seen. Being what is understood through what has been made. He says creation is telling you, God, God has done this. We are without excuse then. Paul says, using logic, look around. There is a divine cause of all these caused things, and he is God. The things in creation call us to acknowledge God, to cling to God, but because of sin, we profess to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of incorruptible God for the image of corruptible things, of birds, he says, of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and give worship to created things rather than to the Creator. What am I aiming at? I'm aiming at this. When we think about the new creation... Why are we longing for created things to be there so much? And why are we ignoring that the creator of all things is the one that will be there and that we will find a life? Amen. That's what I'm aiming at. The primary purpose of creation and all creatures is to tell of the divine power, beauty, kindness, and love of God, which should result in the image bearer of God ascribing honor and glory to God and giving to him their love and obedience. Now in the new creation, watch this, I hope, heaven and earth become one. The suppressing of the knowledge of God will be no more. We won't suppress knowledge of God anymore. Jeremiah 31 says, no one will even teach his neighbor to love God. We will all love and know God. Behold, Revelation 21 tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them which means that things on this earth that have been been created they've been created now here's where this all comes together they've been created for a primary purpose to declare the glory of God to call all men to look to God and to give him glory 
But in the new creation, no one will have to look to things to point them to God. Because God will be among us. Revelation 22.4, we will see his face. Do you need the Son to point you to the Son of God? He will, we will see him. Do you need water to remind you of the Holy Spirit and wind to remind you of the Holy Spirit? We will be among the persons of the Trinity. Do you need a lamb to remind you of the, the death of Christ? We will see Christ. Do you need, oh, we'll get to this in the next point. Revelation 22, 5 declares that the new creation, in, uh, if you go, yeah, in the, there will be, in the new creation 22, 5, um, John says there will be no sun in the new creation. John also says, and there won't be a moon either. I am arguing that the first creation is actually nothing like the new creation. For those who go, but in the beginning, Adam, the first creation is to be like the next creation. I'm actually, I'm arguing that it's actually nothing like the first creation. I'm not even arguing, and I don't mean this as a slide, I'm not even arguing that it's better than the beginning. I am arguing that when heaven and earth become one, we will enjoy the reason for our and their existence. It's to know God, to love God, to enjoy God forever. Therefore, the things that exist have reached the reason for the, the purpose for their existence. And they will no longer be necessary. When Adam failed to accomplish the sec what, what Adam failed to accomplish, the second Adam doesn't go, Christ, doesn't go and pick up the slack for him. Christ, the better Adam, doesn't finish what Adam started. Christ accomplishes far beyond what Adam potentially could have ever accomplished by merging heaven and earth, by being the, the divine ladder between God and man. I am arguing that oceans, trees, plants, animals, um, planets, galaxies, and beyond will not exist in the new creation. When heaven and earth become one, because their purpose was to testify of the glory of God in, a, in the new creation, and we will not need them to testify to God any longer. We will know him. We will see his face. Point, therefore, let us not cling to the temporal things, but with anticipation cling to Christ. Let us not hold on to the things of this temporal world because they will pass away and they're meant to point you to God. And if you're not clinging to God, you're missing the reason why they exist. Brings us to our second point. Will the earth, so will the earth exist? Yeah, but it'll be completely different because it'll be merged with heaven and it, it will be something, we'll talk about this next week maybe, it will be something altogether different than what you and I know now. Okay. Brings us to the second point related to the first. Of the ceasing of plants, animals, waters in the new creation. Then what will our bodies be like? Number two, bodies in the new creation. Bodies in the new creation. Uh, verse one. Be patient with me, okay? Stay with me. Stick with me. In the first point, uh, I've, I've argued that all of these things have a purpose for their existence. Creation tells of the glory of God. It gives us a sense of his power, beauty, um, kindness, and love. Calls us to reach out with anticipation to God. <clears throat> Second, what is the secondary reason for, let's do this, for those who go, well, what about the first creation? Is it supposed to be anything like the second? 
Isn't Adam, aren't we supposed to be like Adam? Let's say, I'm going to say no. What was the purpose of plants, animals, secondarily, waters in, in the first creation? What was their purpose? They were to sustain man, his life, and to assist man in his commission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay? I'm going to argue, here's why I'm doing this. I'm going to argue, and I hope this is more of a sermon and not just a polemic, but get with, follow me. I'm going to argue that from the first creation, to argue from the first creation, that the first creation is something of a microcosm of the new creation, it's false. That we are going to be like Adam was is false. If Adam ate in the first creation, will we eat in, this, in the next creation? Will you need food in the new creation? If there were plants and animals, water and mountains in the first, then it must be the same in the new. Let's work through this, okay? Genesis 1. I told the, the Akalas, you're going to hopefully, they just got done reading through Genesis. Hopefully you enjoy this because the next two chapters have a lot of Genesis. 127, the Lord says of all created life, that all created life has been given to man for food, and that man was to fill the earth and subdue it, bring it to completion. God gave man all of creation, plants, animals, water, etc. Why? To be used to sustain his life so that he could live. God ordered man in a particular kind of animalistic way. You need to eat. Like an animal, in a sense, right? You, in a sense, you are like an animal. You're not an animal, I get it, right? But there's a part of you that could be rightly considered animal. If you want to talk to someone about that later, ask Isaiah. Um, in the new creation, oh, in the first creation, you need to eat. It's according to your nature to eat in order to sustain, to sustain your life. If you thought that Adam was not in need of food to live... Um, that's incorrect. We might say, well, it's only if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he would die. Well, no, not necessarily. It's a part of man's nature to eat. God rightly ordered men to eat to be sustained. One may say, well, it's only if Adam sinned that he would die. When God created Adam, he created him from the, from the dust, my daughter will say, of the ground. She loves that part. From the dust of the ground. In the Old Testament, dust is a substance that is frequently associated with um, frailty. When God says, when, when the scripture says Adam is made from the dust of the ground, that's to associate him with being frail. Not immortal. I read Psalm 103 last week where David describes God's mercy to us because God knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. Adam was dust even before the fall. He's a frail creature. He has the potential to live or die. It's not to say that we're not created good. It is to say that there is a, a greater good ahead of us, potential for a greater good that we are to ascend towards. When God created man, he graciously set him on a road of potential 
to either rise to immorality, that is beatitude, or to fall short of the glory of God through disobedience. We know which one he chose on that road. The food of God's creation would sustain Adam as he lives out his God-ordained vocation of working in the garden and keeping it. Many things that we can say, though. But let's just focus on this. How do we know that Adam could have died? There are many things about the tree of life that are interesting. But we don't understand its significance until after the fall. We don't understand. We don't even know there's a tree there. The tree of life until after the fall. Did Adam know the tree was there? I think we can assume that, yes, he knew that that tree was there as a, a sign of his reward for obedience. Are you following me? Yes. Follow me. What is the reward that God provides in the tree of life? What do you get when you eat from the tree of life? What is it? Huh? Eternal life. It's immortality. When Adam and Eve sin, God banishes them from the garden so that they will not take from the tree of life and have something that they don't yet have. Immortality. The implication is that they were not created immortal, but they had the potential to attain immortality. Genesis 3.22. Lest he reach out his hand, take from it the tree of life, and live forever. But, but what about this idea of immorality? I think Aquinas is helpful in explaining that there's a difference between Adam's spiritual innocence, that is, he's sinless, which gives him the potential to be immortal. But his natural existence is truly a physical one. He's not Superman before the fall. He's just holy. It's not as though Adam could not be, be eaten by an animal. He had authority over them. But he was a physical being. He couldn't jump into the water and stay underwater for an hour. Like Superman can swim, can fly through the water. He, he wasn't that kind of a human being. He was a holy human being. Not a superhero human being. It was according to Adam's proper order to eat and thereby, thereby be sustained in his existence. In fact, Aquinas argues that it would have been a sin for Adam not to eat. To deny the body of what's natural to it, eating, is to thus disregard the body and not honor it and care for it. Paul says in Ephesians 5, no one hates his flesh, but we nourish it. And that is good for us to do. The first man ate. It was good for him to eat according to his proper ordering. He needed to eat to survive. It's the corruption of the flesh that makes us eat more than we should. It's not a corrupted man that has to eat, though. God created food for him to eat, drink, to enjoy as he is working on being fruitful and multiply, multiplying. Now, Paul says, though, when we're resurrected, something altogether different happens to our bodies. In a sense, the first man is peri no, the first man is perishable if he doesn't eat. The first man is corruptible if he doesn't eat. The first man is a mortal man if he does not eat. 
But Paul says, for those who have trusted in Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he compares the glorified body of Christ, which is a life-giving spirit, with Adam's body, which he quotes in 2.7, it's just a living being. And he does, he starts to show the differences between the man of dust and the man of heaven. The man of dust is corruptible, perishable, and mortal. But Paul describes Christ as being, in, I'm getting to a point, incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. The point is this, Paul describes that what we will be in the new creation is nothing like we were in the first creation. Now, here's the, the, here's the crescendo, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, here it is. We will all be changed. In a moment, now watch what he does. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, listen to this, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be raised imperishable. We will be changed from, for the perishable must put on imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. Which means this, there will, be a, there will come a time when this present perishable body will become imperishable. What does that mean? It means that our bodies will become different altogether. We will go from mortal to immortal. It means that we will no longer be perishable, which means experiencing decay. We will not die. Presently, we must eat in order to avoid experience perishing, decaying. We presently need God to give us food and water so that we don't perish. We presently depend upon God to provide those things for our existence. But in the new creation, we will be imperishable, incorruptible, not dependent upon plants and animals or water for our existence. How is that possible? The same writer to Revelation also addresses a church in 1 John, that is John, he says, Beloved, 1 John 3, 2, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. Watch that point. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Like, light will see light. John is not saying what we will be is unknown, but rather what we will be is unknown in terms of experience. We haven't yet understood it by experience yet. But here's what we know. We will be like Christ. What is Christ? Christ is incorruptible, imperishable, immutable. Christ is not in need of a created thing to sustain him. He is unchanged. We will be like him. Which means this. Uh, let, 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 someone might go, well, what about the, the, the resurrected humanity of Christ? Did he not eat? Did he not cook fish? Did Jesus need to eat? Or, I believe, was Jesus teaching us and his disciples something about his true humanity? He is truly human. And what is the tool that Christ was using to show um, his disciples that they were not seeing a vision, that he was truly raised. I'll take some food. You're not seeing a vision. I'm really here. Touch. 
Put your finger there. In the new creation, we will be imperishable, immutable. We won't be changed if we don't eat. That means animals, plants, water have served their ultimate purpose. What, what is their purpose now? To sustain you. But in heaven, God will sustain you. You will not be in need of anything because you will be imperishable. Therefore, all things that are now for your present survival will have fulfilled their purpose and will not be needed any longer. The existence of the same man who was once perishable at a time but will be raised imperishable. Um, mountains, Revelation 6. Islands will be no more. Revelation 8. Trees, grass, creatures of the sea. Sorry, Nez. Spring waters will also be no more. Revelation 16. Every living thing will die and river and spring will be no more. There's some, a lot of symbolism in Revelation. I don't, know, I don't think these are symbolic. I think these are literal. I think these are some things that we need to say, yeah, I think John's saying something about what the world as it is. In the resurrection and subsequent, subsequent glorification of our bodies, we will go a, a change in condition and quality of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm almost done. Hang with me. Also in the resurrection of the dead, uh, it will it is a sown it is sown a perishable body, it is raised in perishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown natural, raised spiritual. The condition of our bodies will be such that we are not dependent upon created things for our existence. We will be dependent upon God who made you. God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and obeying him. Or let's do it the other way. Why, why do you exist to love God and to enjoy him forever? Not to enjoy whatever favorite meal you have in heaven. I hope that there is double fudge chocolate pie or cake in heaven. I, I'm going to be able to eat that and not get fat. I'll have my six pack. I'll be six foot one. Do you see that we're, 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 we're desiring the lower things of this world rather than the higher things when it comes to what we anticipate in heaven? I want to be able to run 20 miles and not lose my breath. Are there miles in heaven the way in the new creation, the way that they, we have them now? I'm saying that because in heaven, our body, and I think this is a beautiful point, our body will experience with the soul perfect beatitude, perfect blessedness. And there will be an intensification. Thank you, Pastor Isaiah. There will be an, an intensification of what the soul experiences when it departs from the body and, ex, and enjoys beatitude. There will be an intensification when the body is united to the soul and body and soul together experience perfect beatitude. These are the things that we look forward to in heaven. Not how many pizzas can I wolf, wolf down without losing any, without gaining any weight. It's Christ that we should want. It's Christ that, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want to enjoy? Some might be disappointed that I'm arguing that there are no plants, no animals, no waters in creation. But let me remind you why they exist to call us upward to God. What am I aiming at? I already told you. 
I'm aiming at loosening our grip by God's help to things that we cling on to here. That our greatest joy in heaven in the new creation is God. The created things that sustain us so that we could live and love and serve God. They will have fulfilled their purpose because we will be with God. They exist to sustain us because we're presently perishable. But there will come a time when we will not be perishable. In the new creation, we will be incorruptible. In the new creation, all will be complete. And you may not be able to enjoy your favorite earthly food. And listen to this, maybe, maybe even your favorite earthly hobby. There are some people who go, I hope there's golf in heaven. You might as well go to hell. Because God is the joy of heaven, not golf. Or any other hobby. Recall, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will live among them. God is to sustain us. God satisfies us. We should delight in God. We will be like Christ. And dear ones, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. No longer will there be death, no mourning, no crying. All things have passed away. We won't remember the tears of old. We will only rejoice in the glory of God. The joy of heaven and earth becoming one is this, that we are like Christ and we are one with him in perfect blessedness. I call you, saints, examine your own heart. What are you clinging to now that you need to loosen your grip of? Because it is a temporal thing. Are you ready and willing to let go in order to enjoy not lesser joy, greater joy. God is not saying, loosen your grip of that thing that you love so that I can give you something that you love less. He's saying, loosen your grip of that thing that you cling to, that you think you find joy in. And he will give you himself. And you will find the greatest joy and satisfaction in him. Not lesser joy, greater joy. Not lesser blessedness, greater blessedness. It's the reason why you exist, to love him and to enjoy him forever. Let us pray.